Hello and welcome to SparkleTech, episode number 54 in the series of musings and mutterings from my favorite city, San Francisco. It was May of 1853 and a Pacific mail ship was steaming into San Francisco Bay from Panama. On the gently rolling deck stood a tall, shapely woman of striking appearance. Glossy, dark hair, skin the color of sweet, fresh cream, and beautifully expressive gray-blue eyes. She'd been the star of the voyage, attracting the attention of every masculine soul on board, and though she had never before set foot in San Francisco, a stage play based on her history was on the boards at the San Francisco Theater, Then a horse bearing her name would be running, and winning, a huge purse later in the week. At a mere 35 years old, Lola Montez was not just the talk of the young gold rush town, but had long since become the most discussed, vilified, and admired woman of her age. If supermarket tabloids had existed in the Victorian era, her face would have sold more newspapers than Britney Spears and Madonna put together. I've thrown myself into the lives of all too many historical characters in the course of my SparkleTech research, and contradictory sources are par for the course, if not a prerequisite, to any historical investigation. The story of Lola Montez, though, is unlike anything I've ever come across. The details of her improbable career were obscured during her life by a constant swirl of gossip and rumor, some of it spread by her own hand, and the distortions, legends, and half-truths endlessly repeated by her subsequent biographers haven't helped matters much either. But why not? As it turns out, her career was born with a lie on a London stage in 1843. But before we get to that, and to her arrival in San Francisco ten years later, let's begin at what seems to be the beginning. Lola Montez was born in 1818, the illegitimate product of a liaison between the romantic poet Lord Byron and a charwoman. Or was her father actually a poor Spanish nobleman? The famous Toreador? Or perhaps, and in fact, none of the above. She was actually a little Irish girl, born plain old Elizabeth Rosanna Gilbert in County Sligo, Ireland. Her father was a British army officer, then the family was stationed in colonial India. Cholera swept him early from Elizabeth's life, and the wild young girl was shipped off to Scotland to live with a set of chilly Calvinist relatives, and then to a proper English boarding school. Upon remarrying and returning to England, her mother determined to marry her daughter off as quickly as possible to an elderly judge. Elizabeth had spent her entire life thus far chafing under the weight of propriety, and at this she rebelled, impetuously eloping with the first man to cross her path, an army officer, just like father, then headed for India. Things did not go terrifically well between them, and Elizabeth, following the marriage called Elizabeth James, soon returned to England. It isn't clear who strayed first, though my money's on her, but both parties ended up entangled in extramarital affairs. Elizabeth, in fact, developed something of a reputation in certain circles. What is clear, though, is that when a divorce summons arrived and the scandal hit the papers, Elizabeth took off for Spain and was never heard from again, at least not under that name. 
She spent a period of about six months in Spain, studying the rudiments of flamenco dance and developing a plan to reinvent herself. I think she must have felt that her common birth was some sort of dirty trick that the universe had played on her, and she was determined to set things right. When she returned to England, she was no longer Elizabeth James, but Doña Lola Montez, the widow of a nobleman murdered by revolutionaries and forced to sell her imagined properties in London and give singing lessons to pay her way. Lord Malmesbury, an elderly and very proper Englishman, took pity on the beautiful young refugee and offered to host a benefit concert for her at his estate. She made connections there that led directly to an engagement at Her Majesty's Theatre, and after hearing this review of the benefit concert, it's not hard to see why. Her figure was even more attractive than her face, lovely as the latter was. Lithe and graceful as a young fawn, every movement that she made seemed instinct with melody. Her dark eyes were blazing and flashing with excitement. In her pose, Grace seemed involuntarily to preside over her limbs and dispose their attitude. The London papers were in a tizzy over the impending performance of this Castilian beauty for the first introduction of Spanish dance to the English public, and when the evening came in June of 1843, she conquered. Many, many subsequent sources tell us that she was in truth not much of a dancer at all, but won people over through naked charisma and force of personality. At that first performance, she apparently just strung bits of flamenco and other Spanish dances together, stalking and swooping dramatically about the stage, and was at the end rewarded with an avalanche of flowers from the audience. The reviews from the press made much of her native Spanish fire and passion, and this from the London Evening Chronicle is typical. Doña Montez is not a dancer in the general acceptation of the word. She has none of the execution of the art. No pirouettes, no entrechats, no wonderful displays of agility. Her dancing is little more than a gesture and attitude, but every gesture and attitude seems to be the impulse of passion acting on the proud and haughty mind of a beautiful Spaniard. For she is exquisitely beautiful in form and feature. For she is exquisitely beautiful in form and feature, realizing the images called up by perusal of Spanish romance. Dancing has often been called the poetry of motion, but the term could never be more happily applied than to this beautiful specimen of the national dancing of Spain. Lola must have thought that she had conquered all of England that night, but it was not to be. Legend tells us that the charade fell apart right on stage during her very next performance, when a would-be lover, a rejected nobleman who had known her as Elizabeth, stood up in his box and announced to the shocked audience that she was no Spaniard at all, but plain old Irish Betsy James. A hiss came from the crowd, furious over the duplicity, followed by an escalating torrent of boos. The stricken Lola, slash Elizabeth, was chased from the stage. The scandal was enthusiastically dissected by the newspapers, and she was dismissed by the theater, her career in London dead on arrival. She fled to Europe, settled in Paris, and, though going through some initial hard times, singing in the streets for her supper, began slowly to make a name for herself. Wonderful reviews, well, 
mostly wonderful, began to appear of her performances in Germany and Austria, and by the end of the year she was knocking them dead in Berlin, giving private performances for an audience of royals, including King Friedrich Wilhelm IV and Tsar Nicholas of Russia. An even more private audience was held with Prince Albrecht, the king's brother with whom Lola allegedly had a little affair. This idyllic Prussian period ended abruptly with a very public exhibition of Lola's soon-to-be-infamous temper, perhaps already growing in proportion to her now permanent identification with the adopted role of the fiery Latin. She was present at Potsdam during a review of Prussian troops by the German king and the Tsar. A cannon was fired, as is wont to happen during such affairs, and Lola's horse bolted, charging directly into the midst of the royal party. As the horse came to a halt, a gendarme stepped forward and brusquely ordered her away, striking Lola's horse with the flat of his saber. In what would become a signature maneuver, Lola laid his face open with her horsewhip. This was an offense punishable by three to five years in prison, aggravated by the fact that when the legal summons arrived, she tore it up and flung it in the messenger's face. This little tantrum actually landed her in prison, but thanks to her youth, and no doubt to her extreme beauty, she was pardoned and abandoned Germany for Poland. The Berlin Opera House also burned down while she was in town, but I can't prove that she had anything to do with that. In Poland again, the reviews were mixed. According to the more entertaining version of the story, Lola attracted the attention of an ancient lascivious viceroy who offered her the gift of a splendid country estate and would load her with diamonds besides. Stung by her refusal, he, according to Lola, had his lackeys show up at every performance, booing and hissing. Lola, enraged, ran down to the footlights and told the audience what the real story was, to tremendous applause. In her version, there was unrest all over Warsaw, and she practically lit the spark of an anti-royalist revolution. She was ordered to be put under arrest, but barricaded herself in her room with a pistol, threatening to shoot the first man through the door. The Polish papers claimed that she'd been booed because she was awful, as the London era put it, beyond mediocre, and had then made crude and unladylike gestures to the audience later whacking another gendarme with her ever-present whip. Either way, she was saved from prison by the French consul and quit Poland as quickly as she'd left Prussia. She was received by Tsar Nicholas at St. Petersburg and pursued the brilliant pianist Franz Liszt along the way as a lover and as a means to gain introductions to the right kind of people. In Dresden, Liszt introduced her to the opera composer Richard Wagner, who wrote that his impression of her was of a painted and jeweled woman with bold, bad eyes. Liszt allegedly ended the affair by abandoning her one night locked into a hotel room, which she then completely destroyed, a turn of events which Liszt had foreseen and thoughtfully paid the management in advance. When Lola finally arrived back in Paris, she found that her reputation had preceded her, she was becoming known as La Belle Horizontale, and the theaters were packed. Her reception on stage by the discriminating Parisians was scathing, though, and this time there was no Polish viceroy to blame for the hissing. Lola retaliated by making faces at the audiences and hurling her garters over the footlights. Off stage, however, she was making friends and lovers at an alarming rate. 
She associated with Alexandre Dumas, Victor Hugo, Balzac, and George Sand as well, so they say, and then met a man who was to be the one great love of her life, though all too briefly, Monsieur Henri Dujarrier, liberal editor of La Presse. Before they could be married, though, Henri was cut down in a duel, perhaps over his politics, but more likely over Lola's honor, and Lola covered his corpse with kisses as she encountered the procession bringing his body back from the engagement. Perhaps it would have been better if she had fought the duel, for she had a wide reputation as a crack shot, but at least Henri left her enough money to keep her off the stage for a little while. Broken-hearted, Lola drifted out of Paris and around Europe, consorting with counts and taking pot shots at ex-lovers, finally washing up in Munich. She'd always told her puritanical family back in Great Britain that she'd marry a prince one day, and it was in Munich that she finally had her chance. Ludwig I was the king of Bavaria, a poet and aesthet in one of the most beautiful cities on the continent. He was famed for his gallery of beauty, a long hall containing oil paintings of the most beautiful women that had passed beneath his gaze. Lola Montez was not known as the most beautiful woman in Europe for nothing, then when Ludwig learned that she was in his city, he summoned her to his chambers. An enduring legend of this first meeting, a meeting that would eventually shake Europe, has King Ludwig questioning the um, authenticity of Lola's breasts. She responded indignantly and emphatically by tearing open the top of her dress and allowing him to make up his own mind. The 60-year-old monarch was apparently convinced. Within a week, Despite the worries of his advisors, he had her performing in the royal and national theaters and walked her into his court saying, Meine Herren, meet my best friend. Not long after that, she was installed in her own castle, given an income, a gilded coach, and on Ludwig's birthday in 1847, given not one but two royal titles, Countess of Landsfeld and Baroness of the Order of St. Teresa. Ludwig was beyond smitten. He was to the point of having her foot copied in marble and placed on his writing desk. Her ex-lover, Franz Liszt, wrote understandingly of this, describing Lola as the most perfect, most enchanting creature I have ever known. Oh, one must have seen her. She's always new, always plastic, creative at every moment. She's truly a poet, the genius of charm and love. All other women pale beside her. One can understand everything that King Ludwig has done and sacrificed for her. Everything. The people of Munich more or less tolerated her at this point, in spite of her smoking and swearing, the bulldog on the chain, the riding crop, and her just, I don't know, general unladylikeness, then also despite the famous Bavarian Catholic conservatism. I suppose the situation would have floated along indefinitely had she been satisfied with this, even under the frowns of the bishops, but Lola was never satisfied. This would be as good a time as any to mention that Lola actually was the inspiration for the phrase that eventually made its way onto Broadway, whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And what she wanted now was power, political power, and to the horror of the Bavarian aristocracy and the Jesuit clergy began to insert herself into affairs of state. According to Lola's own account, 
Under her advice, the king pledged himself to a course of steady improvement of the freedom of the people. Political freedoms did begin to open up, but she, of course, was also putting her favorites into power, pushing the clergy out, and flaunting her position at every opportunity. A letter from the king's foreign minister quotes her, saying, What she had decided was going to happen would happen, she said, even if it came to a revolution, even if it meant that the king and she would go down with it. She said I would see what a spirited woman could accomplish when she set all the levers of intrigue into motion. This lolismus, as it was being called, eventually caused three successive cabinets to fall, while at the same time alienating the public with her frequent tantrums, free use of the riding crop, and general abuse of shopkeepers, priests, public citizens, and even the queen. She was damned by clergymen in pulpits, a fiend, a devil, a she-dragon, and the new freedom of the press was being used to condemn her and Ludwig as well. This uncrowned queen of Bavaria was offered a bribe of what in our day would be a quarter of a million dollars in gold to simply vanish, but she would have to be driven from her position, and that's just what happened. In early 1848, the entire city rose up in violence, and with pitched battles being fought in the streets between her enemies and supporters, Ludwig was forced to withdraw her citizenship and order her expulsion. Mobs attacked her palace, shrieking down with the whore, and hurling brickbats at the walls as she toasted them from the balcony with champagne. People threw literal brickbats in those days, big chunks of brick, the word not yet having evolved to mean insult. Lola is finally driven from the city in a scene vividly described in one of George Fraser's brilliantly invented histories of this era. His fictionalized hero, a self-described poltroon named Harry Flashman, happens to be present at the scene and describes it vividly, whether it actually happened this way or not. The endless and slavering mob gathered at the gates to the palace, the coach arriving to take her away, but then leaving the gates and moving to the center of the crowd without her. And then, just daring them to make a move, Lola appearing at the front door, dressed to the nines and walking slowly and gracefully directly into the mob towards the carriage. They'll kill her, thought Harry, but they silently, as if in respect for her courage and style, stepped aside and allowed her to walk to the coach, climb aboard, and quietly drive away. Ludwig gave up his crown to follow her a few days later, but she mysteriously lost interest in an old man who wasn't a king anymore, and even though he generously supplied her with money for years afterwards, the love affair, or her side of it anyway, was over. In summary, Lola left behind a deposed and lovelorn monarch, a city in ferment and revolt, and a gorgeous portrait in Ludwig's Gallery of Beauty where it can be seen to this day. Take a peek at sparkletack.com for a photo of this painting. A whole book about this period in Munich would not be unwelcome, not to mention a decadent Hollywood epic. In fact, I'm not sure why that hasn't happened yet, at least not since the black and white era, and I hereby nominate Catherine Zeta-Jones for the title role. Okay, you are undoubtedly thinking at this point, my, what a fascinating tale, but when exactly is this epic going to find its way across the ocean to our beloved San Francisco? A fair question, and we're on our way there now. 
After her Munich adventure, Lola wandered back to Paris. She'd remarried and was suffering through accusations of bigamy. Apparently, the divorce from her first husband hadn't had all its T's crossed and I's dotted, and making a fine living off her reputation as a woman who brought down a king, appearing, for example, in a drama entitled Lola Montez, Countess for an Hour. News of the gold rush in California was sweeping through the press, and she bought a handful of stocks in an obscure mine up near Grass Valley called the Eureka, and then promptly forgot about them. Her husband eventually drowned himself, apparently in despair over his scandalous wife, and she began to feel as though she'd worn out her welcome in Paris. Legendary circus impresario P.T. Barnum happened to be in Europe at the time and approached her with an idea for an American tour. Negotiations broke down between them, but Lola forged ahead and sailed for the New World. Though the Puritans among the American public were suitably scandalized by her behavior and increasingly lewd dancing style, she enraptured audiences from New York to New Orleans, and by the time she arrived in the Delta, three years into her tour, and as usual, followed by tales of whippings and pistols drawn when, say, her dog was refused its own bed at a hotel, she had decided not to go back to Europe at all, but take herself west. As it turned out, the California mine she'd invested in had started to pay off, and she thought she just might have a look at her property. This brings us up to date, back to the San Francisco Bay in 1853. According to Samuel Dixon's account of her arrival, there were over 500 San Franciscans waiting and cheering at the dock. They spontaneously unhitched the horses from the carriage that was to bring her through the streets and pulled it themselves up the hill from the Long Wharf, down where Commercial Street runs now, all the way to Portsmouth Square and the good old Bella Union Theater. Lola smiled and waved to her new fans, and they lifted her from the carriage and carried her into the theater and onto the stage, crying, Dance, Lola, sing! Dixon writes, and Lola, who could not dance very well and could not sing at all, danced and sang. And when she had finished, they threw gold, bags of gold dust, nuggets of gold, on the stage, and the stagehands heaped the gold around her till she was completely hidden from sight. So the story is told. I don't know if this is true, nor am I convinced that San Francisco is where she debuted her infamous and erotic spider dance, but what certainly is true is that she was a tremendous hit here in San Francisco, whose appreciation of high culture was, shall we say, at this point not so thoroughly developed. Her name attracted the most brilliant and overflowing audience ever witnessed in this city, wrote the Golden Era, and the crowds were not present to see her acting prowess. No, it was to see the scandalous woman and the spider dance. The dance, based on the tarantellas of another famous ballerina, was sort of a conceptual piece, woman attacked by giant spiders. Lola would appear on stage wearing flesh-colored tights and a chiffon skirt covered with large cork and whalebone tarantulas. As she spun, pirouetted, and writhed in dramatic attempts to escape the menacing creatures, they danced and twitched along with her, suspended by nearly invisible rubber straps. Finally breaking free, she would diligently search the folds of her costume for more hidden spiders, flinging each one to the floor and stomping it with a dainty foot. The volume of applause determined the extent of her searching, and 
As she hiked up her skirts to locate the last of the little beasts, the crowd would be whipped into an absolute frenzy, shouting in unison, Higher, Lola! Higher! As a final gesture, Lola would slide a silken garter from one leg, an act perfected in Europe, as we've learned, and toss it into the audience, often inspiring a near riot. Her first performance at the American Theater was reviewed by the Alta California with restraint that made me laugh out loud when I first read it. She was greeted with a storm of applause and then she executed the dance, which is said to be her favorite and has won for her much notoriety. The spider dance is a very remarkable affair. It is thoroughly Spanish, certainly, and it cannot be denied that it is a most attractive performance. As a danseuse, Madame Lola is above mediocrity. Indeed, some parts of her execution were truly admirable. She was heartily applauded, and at the close of the performance, she very neatly expressed her profound gratitude for the reception she had met with. Lola is sure to have fine success with us. That is to say, she has merit of a high order, for nothing less could succeed with a people so practical and exacting as ours. She had met a man who was to be husband number three on the steamship voyage to the city, and even though being courted by none other than Samuel Brannan while on board, she'd fallen for dashing young newspaper editor Patrick Hull, and the two were married in the Mission Dolores just a few days after their arrival. Lola had a hell of a time in San Francisco, which suited her eccentric and freewheeling temperament perfectly, carousing and drinking and becoming the absolute center of attention. It said that men would come pouring out of San Francisco saloons as she sashayed past with a fine pair of greyhounds, a white cockatoo perched on one shoulder, and a cigar cocked jauntily from one corner of her mouth. Walter Thompson relates an anecdote which captures this perfectly. She'd somehow acquired a pair of grizzly cubs which were led along behind her in the charge of a young handler. One day, while Lola was on a tour of the mission, the handler decided to hang out with some friends at the mansion house bar next door. While the revelry was going on, the bears gained their liberty and started to do the mission for themselves. For two hours, they maintained a successful reign of terror, scaring the women and children into fits and causing all doors and windows to be barricaded. Finally, their mischievous doings reached Lola's ears, and with her flinty temper flashing sparks, she strode into the bar, riding whip in hand, and opened on him with tigerish fury. The language she used is said to have rolled the whiskey on the shelves, and she informed him that if those bears were not under control within one hour, she would cut his eyes out with her whip. Eventually, Lola took her show on the road and made a tour of the gold mining cities in Northern California, Sacramento, Marysville, and Grass Valley among them. She was generally a success, principally due to the spider dance, I think, but lost the critics. After a particularly scathing review in the Sacramento Californian, in which the editor charged that people only showed up because they had free tickets, Lola responded with a characteristic letter, challenging him to a duel. You may choose between my dueling pistols or take your choice of a pillbox. One pill shall be poison and the other not, and the chances are even. The editor apparently ignored the challenge, and Lola continued the tour. She ended up in Grass Valley, the site of her gold mine interests. 
This is somewhat hard to fathom, after her association with the glamorous capitals of Europe, and even with the glorious mayhem of San Francisco, but she fell in love with that sleepy little town and impetuously decided to retire from the stage, uproot her new husband Hull, and relocate. She bought a small cottage, which still stands as a historic monument, and moved right in. Though Hull sold his interest in the San Francisco newspaper and followed her up, the marriage was doomed, and their loud and alcohol-fueled fights broke the silence of that small town on many a night. Divorce was in the air, yet again, and after he slunk back down to San Francisco, Lola's cottage became the center of masculine attention, attracting suitors of all stripes and a plethora of gifts as well, including, once again, a grizzly cub. I don't know if she missed the roar of an audience, but the din of her menagerie may have sufficed. It eventually grew to four dogs, a sheep, several parrots, the bear cub, of course, and a monkey. Lola was an enormous fish in a very small pond, and though the locals tried, she made herself impossible to ignore. Unlikely as it may sound, she devoted herself to charity work, caring for wounded miners, and even arranged a Christmas extravaganza for the children of the town. Even the local preacher and his wife allegedly fell under her spell. The story goes that, after a series of anti-Lola sermons, she strode up to their home, knocked on the door, and gave them a private version of the spider dance. The pair were overcome by her personality and charm, and they became supporters, as well as the umpteenth people to fall under the spell of this amazing woman, self-described as wild, wayward, but never wicked. <laughs> I wish I could verify that story. I hope it's true. The year that she spent in Grass Valley coincidentally helped to launch the career of a woman even more dear to the hearts of San Franciscans. One of her neighbors was a woman named Mary Ann Crabtree, mother of a charming and irrepressible red-haired daughter named Lotta. As the story goes, little Lotta was attracted to the cottage of her mysterious neighbor by the animals on the property, and Lola, recognizing the genuine natural talent within the child that she herself had always lacked, took a special interest in her. Marianne was initially suspicious of this dark-eyed Countess of Lansfeld with a scandalous past, but once she'd actually met Lola, and in spite of the whisperings of the neighbors, she decided that she liked the woman and allowed Lotta to continue to enjoy her company. Lola took Lotta under her experienced wing, teaching the slip of a girl a number of dance steps, from ballet to fandango to traditional highland flings, as well as a handful of mournful Irish ballads. This tale will be more thoroughly told in a future episode of Sparkle Tech, but suffice it to say that, towards the sunset of her own celebrity, Lola provided a crucial spark to the long and incredibly successful career of Lotta Crabtree. It was perhaps inevitable that her retirement in this little valley was not going to last. Lola soon began to miss the stage and launched a comeback tour. The spider dance was not aging well in California, though, and people started labeling the Countess as a has-been. Lola was never one to take rejection well, and in a huff, she headed for Australia, site of a new gold rush. The tour of Australia was marked by mixed reviews and yet more scandal. Abuse of theater managers, threatened arrests, fights with newspaper publishers, etc., 
And when Lola eventually returned to San Francisco in 1856, she decided it was only temporary. She sold her property, auctioned off her jewels to raise funds for the family of her manager lover who had fallen overboard on the way back from Australia, and left the West Coast forever. Lola ends up living in New York City, performing on and off the spider dancing stage and giving a series of lectures throughout the East on subjects such as gallantry, comic aspects of love, strong-minded women, and so on. She even found time to write a humorous little book called The Arts of Beauty or Secrets of a Lady's Toilet. The beauty secrets are, by all accounts, ahead of their time, but the humor appears in Hints to Gentlemen on the Art of Fascination with which the little work ends. Here's a sample, rule number 20. Gentlemen, dance with all the might of your body and all the fire of your soul in order that you may shake all melancholy out of your liver. And you need not restrain yourself with the apprehension that any lady will have the least fear that the violence of your movements will ever shake anything out of your brains. At some point during the following year, though, Lola must have come face to face with her own mortality. She found religion. It must have been quite a sight to see her in the streets carrying a Bible, preaching against slavery, and visiting prisons and asylums for fallen women, but that's exactly what she did. She didn't flaunt this spiritual transformation, though, which seems to have been genuine. According to Bruce Seymour, author of the best and most honest biography of Lola, she maintained her public image of a cynical, carefree woman of the world. The timing of her conversion was prescient, though, for in late 1860, she suffered a crippling stroke, and not long after, weakened and tired, came down with a simple cold on a wintry walk. Contracting pneumonia from it, she dies quietly on January 17, 1861, in New York City. In life, she never reclaimed the identity of that innocent Irish girl born over four decades earlier, and her grave marker, located in Greenwood Cemetery, Brooklyn, identified her incorrectly as Eliza Gilbert, messed up her birthday, and failed to mention Lola Montez at all. It was recently replaced, but it seems fitting somehow that with all the confusion she'd caused in life, even her gravestone got it wrong. Lola Montez, by her own admission, always notorious, never famous, fits beautifully into the story of San Francisco. She was the queen of guts, eccentricity, and self-reinvention in the 19th century, a lightning rod for trouble and a natural rebel against received authority. And Barbary Coast San Francisco was the natural home, the metaphorical capital of this kind of attitude. Though gracing us with her presence for only a short while, she's been granted, and I'd say earned, permanent citizenship here. And though it turned out that Lord Byron was not her father after all, considering the impressive trail of broken hearts, whip-scarred faces, and the occasional corpse left in her wake, Lola was equally, in the famous description, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. There's another phrase that follows her, this one actually attributed to Lola as a sort of lifelong motto. Though there's no evidence to show that she ever actually spoke it, it's both fitting and sort of inspirational. 
When faced with a problem, and Lola had one or two in her short life, Lola Montez would look the challenge in the eye, trust fate, and say, courage, and shuffle the cards. Thanks go out this week to Torchomatic for the track The Glass Roof provided under a Creative Commons license. I'd like to thank you for all the positive reactions to my little April Fool's episode. It was good of you to humor me. I've gotten loads of suggestions from you for a whole variety of shows and just wanted to let you know that each of them goes into my ever-thickening black binder. I appreciate every single one, and never fear, one of these days, your story will be told. If you have any comments about this show, and what a story, feel free to post your thoughts at the sparkletack.com website. A variety of illuminating links are to be found there, including a great article about Lola and Ludwig auf Deutsch, as well as pictures of today's unusual star. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time.